in our chapter-by-chapter through the Bible series. Titus is right after the letters of Paul to Timothy, and you will want to find it. It's a very short book of three chapters, but a very powerful letter to the Church of Jesus Christ. And before we begin, while we're settling in, I'd like our musicians to come back as we sing a chorus together and give everybody an opportunity to get situated and comfortable as we look to the Word of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Our theme tonight is why you should be a part of the local church. So let's stand and everybody sing. You know the chorus that Gaithers wrote, and it's a great truth. I hope you feel what he wrote. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Oh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. I'm a joint heir with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. If you are, say amen. You have brothers and sisters all around you, so why don't you meet a few of them? I don't think we've had the opportunity to do that. Before you're seated, please. Wonderful to see all of you here tonight and continue to make Sunday night a very important part of your daily or weekly schedule. The first chapter of the book of Titus. In the notes that you have been given, we try to introduce you to this book just a little bit. There are several points that I'm not going to take a long time on. I want to get to the basic outline of the chapter, but you may want to take some time to look up these verses and follow through on what we have given you as a background for the book as well as this 
man by the name of Titus. He was to Christ what Paul probably wanted him to be in a very real sense, as we will see moving along through this chapter. Titus was a unique individual that so few in the church seem to know much about, a Greek believer which makes him unusual and unique in that setting in itself. Probably a convert out of heathenism of some kind, one who heard the gospel probably through Paul and embraced it with all of his heart and became a great leader in the early church. You will see as you move down through those several points that he assisted in taking the offering for the saints, so he was trusted. He met Paul at Troas, he carried the book of 2 Corinthians back for the Apostle Paul. He was left at Crete, the island of Crete, to reorganize the church. We don't know who planted it, but we know who reorganized it. The Zachariu family from our church know a lot about the island of Crete. And I believe it was there that their father was converted to Christ, if I remember correctly, and where their journey began, family right out of this congregation had their spiritual journey begin on the island of Crete, where Titus went to minister to the church of Jesus Christ in that day. He was with Paul in Rome during the time of his second imprisonment in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and could have been with him in those final days of the apostle's life and the apostle's ministry. Paul's estimate of Titus is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I do want you to look at that one verse, just so you will see what Paul said about him. The 23rd verse of the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Particularly, Paul said he is my partner and my fellow worker. So you will know that the relationship was very special. I suppose as far as Paul was concerned, second only to Timothy in the work of the Lord. Then we have four things that you will want to look up in regard to the book of Titus, that it emphasizes good work, sound doctrine, godliness, and grace. Those are the four themes, basically, 
of these three chapters that bear the name Titus. So follow those themes through in your spare time, and I think you will find it very, very interesting. Now the first four verses of the first chapter. Will you follow along? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. If you are an underliner, you probably ought to underline God who cannot lie. Those are some very significant words in the early going here in Titus. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. The place of the word in the local church. Now, the word of God is the central part of every evangelical, Bible-believing church. I have said it before, and I will emphasize it again, that we do not have in our church what is called a split chancel. That means that on one side is the pulpit where the preaching happens, and on the other side is another lectern where the song leading takes place or the scriptures are read from. We believe that the central part of the sanctuary ought to be the pulpit where the Word of God is preached. So that is part of our architecture because it is at the very heart of everything that we believe and everything that we do. The Word of God is central. And so, in these opening verses, Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about a God who cannot lie. He talks about truth in verse number 1. He talks about the commandment of God our Savior. All of these referring to the statement or the place of the Word of God in the life of the local church. Now, Paul's ministry was an itinerant ministry to a great degree. He moved from place to place. He didn't stay more than a couple of years in one place because that was his calling. He was a missionary, and he took three missionary journeys. But you cannot get away from the vital place that Paul put the local church. He was tied to the local church in everything that he wrote and in everything that he did. He tied it to the local entity called the church. And then inside of that local church was the Word of God that they had to share with one another, which was their hope. 
in times of trial, in times of martyrdom, in times of great difficulty. Paul was saying, you have an anchor. You have something to hold on to. And here it is, the word that I am sharing with you. And this is the emphasis that we need to see in the opening verses of the book of Titus. Now there is a little phrase in verse 3 that deserves some of our attention, and I want you to mark it if you will. It is this phrase, in due time. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Now to understand this terminology, due time, you must think back to the day in which Paul lived. Most people spoke Greek at that time. Furthermore, it was a Roman Empire. I mean it encompassed that whole part of the world. There were no frontiers unexplored. It was all the Roman Empire, and most all spoke Greek. Furthermore, travel was very easy. Does that surprise you? Have you ever heard of the Roman roads? One thing Rome did was to make a network of roads that covered that whole part of the world. And people traveled those Roman roads with considerable ease. Furthermore, the world was conscious of a need beyond what was being met by philosophies of their time. You remember how in Acts 17, Paul, coming by Mars Hill, saw that they had an inscription to an unknown God. In case they had missed any, in all of their study and in all of their learning, they made one to a God that they might have overlooked. And Paul said to them, It is he that I declare unto you. So when you read this statement, God, who has in due time manifested his word through preaching, what Paul is saying there is that there was never a time like this time. Everybody basically talks one language. There is a world system called the Roman Empire. All roads lead to Rome. And furthermore, the philosophies of the Greek orators and teachers have not brought satisfaction to the seeking hungry heart. So, this is why he says, in due time, don't you believe with the preacher in Ecclesiastes that there is a time for everything? There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. There is a time to weep. And there is a time not to weep. 
And so as we look at this phrase, we learn something for our time. It is not a time to sit around and say, how sad that there are so many forces against us. We ought to say, praise God, they have tried everything there is to try and are still empty. Here we are, world, in due time. God has given us the Word of God. He has given us a church to use as a base of operation to proclaim good news to the world. He has given us many, many tools. He has placed them veritably in our hands. And we ought to sit here tonight and say with Paul, God has in due time manifested his word in this place. And we ought to say hallelujah about that. Because there are so many things that favor what God has given us to do over against the things that are outside of the church. We are on the winning team. We know where we're going. And in due time, God has placed us here. God has put us together in this hour for something significant. And we should not overlook it. I love that about Paul. He was a positive thinker. He was a man of faith. He was one who saw possibilities even when he was in prison and believed that through his writings, God could reach out far beyond that prison cell and touch thousands and thousands of lives. And was he right? Absolutely, he was right. In due time, in due time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. God has a time, and God has a season. And as we come down to the latter part of this study tonight, we will learn that we are living in a time that should supersede all other times, for it is the time just prior to our Lord's return and I believe the church is going to go out a victorious church, a victorious body, not a beat-up, ragtag group of orphans. In due time, God is going to do something remarkable if he hasn't already begun, and I want to be a part of it. How about you? I'm not looking back. Thank God for whatever happened back there, but I think we're living in the best time. And I think the best time will yet be as we proclaim truth and as people begin to realize that governments do not have the answer. That when Europe comes together in the early 90s and has a common market and a common currency, that there will be such frustration even then should Jesus tarry that the church of Jesus Christ can rise up and say, there's one thing you've overlooked, a man called Christ who has promised to satisfy every longing of your soul, who's promised to give you life now and life everlasting. I believe 
Those are the days in which the church of Jesus Christ is in and will be in should he tarry his coming. That's the place of the word in the local church which will eventually have its place in the world because we are in what Paul said is due time. I used to think it would be really exciting if I could have lived in the old days of the West. There's just something intriguing about those old Westerns. Somebody comes out from behind a rock and the stagecoach is held up and then there comes a man on a white horse with silver bullets in his gun and a mask on his face and an Indian by his side named Tonto. And he saves the day and always turned out good. Marvelous. Wouldn't that have been exciting? Well, not as exciting as what I believe we are entering into now as a local church. As I said this morning, when we give place to prayer and when we give place to this book, which is powerful to save, we can expect miracles upon miracles to happen. And that's that little phrase, in due time. I believe we have been raised up for this time, and I want you to catch the spirit of it. I want you to feel the fever of it, and I want it to burn in you until you want to be a part of it with every ounce of strength and energy that you possess. Now, the message is in three parts. Notice them quickly on your sheet. God's grace, beginning with the fourth verse, grace, mercy, and peace. And then it goes to a holy life. Verse 1 talks about godliness, and then in verse 12 of the second chapter, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then thirdly, the message is a daily expectation of Christ's return. Look at verse 13 of the second chapter. After you deny yourself the things that others feel are so essential for life, ungodly habits and worldly lusts, we look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we're talking about the Word in the local church. What are we saying? Number one, that through the Word of God, we find that grace is ours, which is unmerited favor. If you're here tonight with sin in your life, the Word of God is preached to you in its simplicity, which says there is grace and there is mercy available to you right now. That's the basic message of this book. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God gave them skins of animals and blood was shed and mercy was given and grace was imparted for the forgiveness of their sins. And so through Jesus Christ, grace and mercy have been imparted to us. And then secondly, it's possible in a wicked environment to live a godly life. If you believe it, say amen. You can live above the world. We can be in the world, but not of the world, the old adage goes. 
That's not corny. That's not passe. That's Bible. That we can be a part of this world because we're mortals and we live here and we have to do certain things to exist here, but in a very real sense, we're living above the world. The world does not squeeze us into its mold. We can live godly lives. And then thirdly, overriding all other things is that we have something to keep grace active in our lives and keep holiness active in our lives, and that is that Jesus Christ is going to return. We don't know when, so we'd better live today as though it were today. If he hasn't come by tomorrow, then the blessed hope says to us, we'd better live tomorrow as though this were the day Jesus comes back. And when you look at it in the light of Paul's letter here, you see that it's not that hard to survive. You just do it a day at a time. It could be the day that the Lord returns, so I'm going to let grace and mercy work in me, and I'm going to be godly and holy in this present world, looking for the blessed hope or the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now somehow, that third part has gotten away from us in recent times. When I was young, I was drilled on point three. Jesus could come. Are you ready? Jesus might come this week. Make sure that your feet go where they ought to go and your hands touch what they ought to touch and your eyes see what they ought to see. And man, that was so drilled into us that we just lived it and we, we practiced it and we talked about it. But somehow we've drifted away from the expectancy of the Lord's return. It was impressed upon me again this morning in prayer how that we need again to capture this concept that Jesus could come at any moment and we ought not to take it lightly. We ought to consider our whole plan for the future in light of that event. Not in light of the stock market, not in light of what's happening in society today, but in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back again. And we believe by Bible prophecy that it could be certainly in our lifetime. So there was the message of the word in the local church. And I just want to underscore it tonight that that's our message as well. It's a message of grace, it's a message of holiness, and it's a message of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I adjure you to live this week as though Jesus could return before we get back together again. You got it? It's important. Now the second section deals with the place of organization in the local church and goes from verse 5 down through verse 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, speaking to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless. Now, the word elder and bishop are the same thing. That's the local head of the church, the pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop, elder, all synonymous terms. So we're talking about the pastor. A bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, before we look at these few points on the sheet, I want you to go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, and see a verse that really connects with Titus, chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 15. This verse reads like this. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Now isn't that unique? because that's exactly what Paul is saying to Titus about the leadership and the organization of the local church. You've got to rid the church of all false prophets and all false teachings, or in the word that we just read, of all who contradict. The elder and honorable is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Now, we have a different kind of philosophy running around today that you put up with anybody and you put up with anything and we ought to be agreeable and we ought to let anything happen. You know, America was built on the premise that free speech and we live and let live and it works to a point. But there comes a point when it just does not work. And I'll tell you where that point is. It's in what we believe. Because we believe this word is the final voice. We believe what the Bible teaches is the word, the very word of God. And so, where God speaks, we cannot be silent just to get along, just to be compatible. Are you with me? So there are churches around or organizations who let anybody come in and who let anything come in because, after all, we're all supposed to get along. We're all supposed to be brothers and sisters. I doubt you could convince Paul that that was the way it ought to be. The organization of the local church 
is clearly set forth here in terms of its activity or action. It says, hold fast the faithful word and convict those who contradict. And then it goes on to give further tasks of the elders of that local church, as we shall see in a moment. Now, when you look at your sheet, you will see two points of what an elder must be, and then number two, what an elder must not be. Just take a look. One who has taught and trained his own family in the faith. What a responsibility. So that the minister can stand and speak with power about God's ability to minister to the family. The family must be disciplined. That is a responsibility of this ruling elder. He should not be self-willed or angry or given to drunkenness and outrageous conduct. He should not be a seeker of gain in disgraceful ways. He must be hospitable, prudent, pious, just, self-controlled. He must be able to encourage the church and to rebuke the opponents of the faith so they can see the truth. Now, it's that last one that, in our day, so few, it seems, want to accept as a part of the role of an elder. And I suspect there are some of you in this fellowship, because I've received some notes from a few, who would just as soon have Pastor Cole sit in his office back there and study for next Sunday and not get too involved with what's out there because when I do, it seems to always get in the news. And I don't know how many have adjured me and counseled me to just be quiet, to just pastor the church. Well, tonight gives me my opportunity to tell you that one of the vital roles of the bishop or the elder or the overseer or the shepherd pastor of the local church is to stir up trouble. And Paul did it in every city. There was either a revival or a riot wherever Paul went. Somebody said, wherever I go, they drink tea. Wherever Paul went, they either had a revival or a riot. So it seems we're doing something wrong. Because in city after city, it's almost like we're too comfortable. There's nobody standing up saying, hey, wait a minute. There's something else you ought to think about here. There are ten commandments in this book that we ought to live by. There are principles taught in the Word of God that will make our lives full and meaningful, and we can't buy this garbage out here that people are throwing at us. 
So please, if you turn on the news and your pastor is there, will you accept this word in Titus as part of my responsibility? Because I accept that responsibility without hesitation. And it is as though you don't have to go look for the problem today. The problem comes looking for you. It's just that way. And I have found with media today that what they want is somebody that will speak their mind, say it succinctly, say it quickly, and then let the people decide. And so that's why we get quite a few opportunities, I have a feeling, and I just wanted to share with you what I think Paul was saying to Titus. He was saying, now Titus, out there at Crete, as you appoint these elders and you get them in place, tell them what I'm telling you. It's not all going to be peaches and cream. It's not all going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be some fighting going on and some struggling going on, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. We fight a spiritual battle, and somebody has to be responsible to bring into account those who teach or contradict that which is true and that which has been manifest in the Word of God. So, that I have said, and I am glad that I said it. He's not only to minister to the saints, he is to stand before the community and say as the prophets of old, Thus saith the Lord. That is his mandate. And I wouldn't want to be a part of a church that thought otherwise. If so, we're going to go down the tubes and false teachers will take over and there will eventually be no faith and there will be no doctrine and it will be like it was in the days of the kings, anything went. They did that which was right in their own eyes. And so God has organized the church with leadership so that that can never happen. Can you accept it? And are you willing to say, well, I never saw it before, but I sure see it now, so sick em, pastor. And when they throw me in jail, you better be there to get me out. <laughs> now, thirdly, the place of refuting false teachers. It's amazing how much space is given to that in this chapter. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, speaking of the Jews, whose mouths must be stopped. Now, that doesn't sound like a Sunday school picnic, does it? Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. We are not to patronize. I wrote that down here at the bottom of the page in red ink. The church is not to patronize. 
We are not to smooth over or sugarcoat. I have a feeling that one of the reasons so many people came to hear Dr. Walter Martin is that he doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't really cover up much. He just says, this is what they believe and this is what the Bible says. And that is absolutely correct. That's why we'll probably have him back periodically because he has a platform from which he can speak that is according to the Word of God. We are not to just sit back and let them say whatever they want to say even though it is contrary to the eternal Word of truth. We are to deal with false teachers and we are to refute them even publicly. I had an experience right here on the platform not too many weeks ago. Not too many of you would know about it. I know one of our staff members did because it shocked him so. He turned to see what in the world was going on. A gentleman, I guess I could call him that. I'll stretch the word a bit. Wanted to challenge my integrity and my honesty and my right to say th certain things, and he came right up on this platform, kind of nose to nose, after a service when people were praying and milling all about. And I took it about that long, because when you're under the anointing, it's amazing what you can do. And I got hot, spiritually. And there is a phrase that I like to use on rare occasions, and this is it. Go hang it on your nose. You know how silly that would look? And I pointed my finger in his face, right over there by the organ, and I said, go hang it on your nose. And I said it with authority. It so discomfited him, he didn't know what to do. He just kind of turned on his heel, and I haven't seen him since. Now you say, was that the right thing to do? You bet it was. Because this is the kind of a person who goes moving about everywhere he can and challenges everything people say out of the Word of God. And the Bible says that in the organization called the local church, there is a spiritual authority and that spiritual authority does not patronize. I don't even believe we're to enter into great long debate. It's like when the Interfaith Service Bureau wanted to get involved with me and wanted to get me into debate. I simply said to them, hey, what kind of a debate would we have when I would simply say perversion, sin, it will be judged, debate is over. What else do you say? I mean, I'm not going to get up there and wrestle through hours and hours of debate when God says, this is it. 
And so, friends, in the days to come, be alerted to the fact that as we await his appearing, we will undoubtedly, as a local congregation, be brought into refuting, not patronizing what is being spoken throughout the community today as truth. Would you just be ready for it? Would you not be surprised, please, when it comes? Now, this isn't on the radio. We're not recording this for KFIA. This is just kind of believers meeting tonight. We're just home folk tonight saying, family, the false teachers are growing in number. They're getting more vociferous all the time, more outspoken, more vocal, and more foolish all the time. So what will be our place? Very simple. Thus saith the Lord. That's where we're going to stand, and we will not move from that place. Now, wherever Christ sows the good seed, Satan always follows with the counterfeit. Always. So it is not hard to understand why in our community there would be so much on the rise or on the increase that is false and untrue and ungodly. And it would not be hard to understand why we are reading more of demonic activity and devil worship and even sacrifices, animals and in some cases, possibly human sacrifices right here in our own community. Why is that? Because the church is growing stronger. Because the church is getting larger. Because the church is gaining influence. And the church is planting the good seed. And wherever the church does that, Satan comes along with the counterfeit. Now we've got to be strong. We've got to stand together. In this time, there were these Jewish teachers who taught legalism and in some cases fables. And Paul said, just come against them. Don't patronize them. Don't put up with it. Refute them. And then declare the word of truth. So, I just want to say tonight that we're going to have some interesting times and God is with us and we have the authority in the Word of God to stand and speak with a smile on our face and say it has proven the tests of time. It has worked every century past. It's working now and it will work in the days to come. Amen? Amen. Now, Finally, down at the bottom of your page, repulsive, disobedient, useless to God. That's quite a sentence. Read on with me. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now notice, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. What a congregation, huh? 
How'd you like to go pastor the church at Crete? Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How would you interns like to have that as your first congregation? And what are you supposed to do when you go and face them? Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now let me illustrate this if I can, and I'm going to wrap this up very quickly because I know some of you have wiggly children with you, and I want to respect that. I got in the mail. Well, I get in the mail every month, let me put it that way. The church, I guess you can call them bulletins. I'm not going to tell you what church, only to say it comes from a, a state right next to the state of Ohio. It is a denominational church, and I got on their mailing list years ago, and I have received every month for years a package of their mail. And I was most interested when this one reached me because it said, and this is their Bible study for Sunday, and it was titled, Church order, and the text was 1 Corinthians 14, which is, of course, about the work of the Holy Spirit in the local church, and a lot about tongues. And since this was not a charismatic church, I was quite interested in this. So just one point in the lesson for that Sunday it was titled, The Principles for the Gift of Tongues. Now, this is how subtle things can get. I read, This was the only church known to have been given this gift, the church at Corinth. Did I read that? What about the church at Jerusalem in Acts 2? What about the church at Ephesus in Acts 19? How could a reputable evangelical church say this was the only church known to have been given this gift? Then it reads, it was primarily given for the Jews during the transition period as Israel was set aside and the church came to the front. Now, wherever that came from, I have no idea. And then we come down to the bottom, and I just put the word really out by it with a couple exclamation marks. If followed, these biblical regulations would end the modern charismatic movement. What biblical reg regulations? 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28, 32 and 33. How do they interpret it? The speaker must be in control of his faculties. In other words, 
You cannot allow madmen in the church. Women were not allowed to exercise either tongues or prophecy in the church. Now that is an interesting interpretation of something that's so obvious when you read the scripture. Women were not to speak during the service because men sat on one side and women on the other and the women couldn't understand what was going on so they would call over to their husbands and Paul in essence was saying, shut up ladies. Ask when you get home. That's what he said. Talk about it at home, but don't disturb the public service. Now, this group says women were not allowed to exercise either tongues or prophecy. Never says that at all. And then this statement, if followed, these biblical regulations would end the modern charismatic movement. I only had one word, really? What is the fastest growing movement in the world today? It's the charismatic movement. Why? Because for so long, these false teachers have been telling us that this was done away with. This is not for today, and yet there are people speaking in tongues, receiving messages from God that edify the body. They're finding a prayer language that builds them up in the most holy faith, and these people have been told for years that it wasn't for them, and suddenly in their intercession and in their earnestness they are finding the experience to back up what they have read in the Word of God which was explained away from them. And they're leaving old line churches by the thousands to find places where the Word of God is taught and preached and believed. So, when you come down to the end of the first chapter of Titus, and he says they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Know that that is indeed happening in our time. So what is the antidote? The antidote is what we read in the first section of this chapter, and that is to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, to emphasize grace, to emphasize holiness, and to emphasize the coming of the Lord. And in the process, you're going to find out that you need the power of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which will lead you into the book of Acts, the pattern book for the New Testament church, and you will discover a gift that God has imparted for power and boldness and edification and uplift, and the church will be dynamic for God. So we're going to say it louder than we've ever said it. We're going to shout it from the rooftops, and we are not going to fraternize. We're not going to politicize. We are just going to say, Thus saith the Lord. That's why you need to belong to the local church. That's why you should not say, I have a television church, or I have a tape church or I have a magazine church. You need to plug in to the local church and support it with all of your might, for it is the local church that defends the faith.
and will stand, in my opinion, the test of time. We will be here when all these other things are flittering away, declaring, thus saith the Lord. Get in with both feet. Amen and amen. God bless you, and God bless the word to your heart. Now let us stand together, please. Before I forget it, it is necessary for us to meet just briefly with the board and the missions committee members that are here in the boardroom following service whenever we are free. If you could join me back there for just a few moments, I would appreciate it, please, just for a few moments. Now, what do we do following a chapter like this? I think there's only one thing that really makes much sense, and that is to thank God for his church on earth. When I think back in my life, every major event that I have ever experienced has happened in conjunction with the church. I mean, every major event of my life has, has taken place in the church. And I believe as each of us think about that, we would have to say, perhaps, where would I be if it were not for the church? Where would I be if someone hadn't supported me, loved me, taught me, preached to me, prayed with me, loved me. Isn't that so? I know that good many of us wouldn't be here tonight, right? We just wouldn't be. But the church was there, and the church will be there because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Praise the Lord. So, uh, I forgot to look for the page. Pastor Randy, let me see that book a minute. I meant to do it and forgot. Tis a Glorious Church. I hope it's in this book. If it isn't, we'll try to sing it anyway. And I don't see it because maybe I don't remember exactly the title. Well, if you see it, yell it out, but uh, I don't find it. Bob, you're an old timer, and I know you know it. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Would you lift it up with me and let's thank him for it.